The passage of scripture that Chad's going to be preaching on is from Acts 2, verses 1 through 12, if you want to read along. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Eliamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the other parts of Libya, Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Wendy is, um, takes part in our form internship that we've uh, started this year back in October, and we've had a wonderful time um, learning and growing together, and um, thank you for that. I gave her a difficult passage with all like the names of places, and I'm glad that I didn't have to do that, so thanks again, Wendy. Language is a very important thing. In fact, anthropologists will tell you that it is language that creates culture. And the fact that there are 7 billion of us on this planet and that we speak different languages, well, sometimes that's gotten us into trouble. But other times it's created sometimes, uh, you know, humorous embarrassment. I have a friend who was once doing missions in East Africa in an area where they predominantly speak Swahili. And she was working among orphans. And she wanted to be able to tell the orphans that she loved them, and that God loved them. So she began to listen. She tuned her ears for this phrase in Swahili, and once she thought that she had it, she began to use this phrase. Well, eventually, an adult speaker of Swahili came up to her and says, what is it you're saying to the children? And she repeated what she thought was, I love you, in Swahili. But she says, no, 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 you're, you're saying to the children, I cut you. I cut you, little one, and God cuts you too. So she remedied that as quickly as she could. But funny enough, her husband at um, another time was in Japan. And he picked up some Japanese words and phrases, and he saw somebody who had a baby, and he wanted to let them know that he thought their baby was cute. Well, he found out the hard way that to our ears, the Japanese word for cute is very close to the Japanese word for scary. So he said to this person, oh, your baby is so scary. But of course, what we read here at Pentecost is not God, you know, 
preventing any sort of embarrassment for the disciples, you know, keeping them from accidentally threatening or offending someone. But there's a lot going on here at Pentecost, and a lot of it has to do, you know, connected with different strands of the meta-narrative of Scripture. First, we find out that it was the day of Pentecost. And when you and I today hear the word Pentecost, we probably think of this very event in Acts chapter 2. But however, for a Jew, Pentecost had been celebrated ever since the Exodus. It was an annual feast, one of the three agricultural feasts they would celebrate each year. And as Aaron mentioned, it was called the Feast of Weeks. It, you would count seven weeks of seven days after Passover. And on the 50th day, you'd celebrate the, the feast. So in the Greek, Pentecostas means 50th. But in traditional Jewish thinking, it was more than just um, this agricultural feast. They began to connect it to their time at Mount Sinai. The early Jewish rabbis concluded that it would have been about 50 days after the Passover, after the Exodus and their liberation from slavery in Egypt, that they would have been at Sinai, both receiving the Torah of God, the law, the, uh, the teaching of God, and when they would become God's covenant people. So these things are very much in their mind. And so, but let us consider what they experienced at Mount Sinai. They experienced the sound of a loud trumpet blast, the blast of a ram's horn, a shofar, loud enough that, that the very mountain shook. They experienced seeing the presence of God manifested through fire on the mountain. And this, of course, was the event that, it, it was the inauguration, the birth of Israel as a nation, as God's covenant people. And then, at the, of course, near the end of this time at Sinai, some 3,000 people would pay with their life because of the idolatry at the event of the golden calf. But let's consider that with what we read about Pentecost. They heard the sound of a loud rushing wind. They saw the presence of God manifested with flames. This was the inauguration, the birth of the Christian church. And we'll find out next week that 3,000 souls believed in the gospel and were filled with the Holy Spirit that day. But not only that, we have other connections through the meta-narrative. We, we see that at Pentecost, the room, the house, was filled with this sound of this loud rushing wind. And the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And whenever the presence of God fills a space, usually temple is involved. And of course, at Sinai, God gives Moses the instructions of this mobile temple, the tabernacle. And of course, they would eventually have those fixed temples throughout their history. But then we find out in the New Testament that Jesus himself becomes this mobile temple, this movable sacred space. As it says in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelled tabernacled among us. But yet after Jesus ascends to the throne, here we see that the temp God's temple presence on earth is now in his people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And so the New Testament picks up on this language that you yourselves are a temple of God. But um, earlier this, a uh, couple months ago, um, I preached about temple and I made the claim that you could summarize the story of the Bible in three words, 
get to get the, the triangle up there. The story of the Bible is about God's presence, his residence with his people with whom he had a relationship and they are working together for God's purposes. The, the, the people's purpose is to have this responsibility of representing God or if you will, it's, it's all about temple, it's about covenant, it's about kingdom. We see that very, at the very beginning of creation, God creating and ordering a space, ordering creation and on the seventh day, God took up divine rest. And the ancients understood that divine rest was about God taking up presence in a temple. So we have this space, this Garden of Eden is this cosmic temple, sacred space where God would dwell with those who bared his image. And he commissioned them with a responsibility of representing him, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, expand the borders of Eden, make the entire world Edenic stretch sacred space so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as water covers the sea. But let's zoom in on that purpose kingdom aspect. And we see that when it comes to kingdom, we have God is the king. And the king gives authority. He authorizes his people. But not only does he authorize them, he empowers them. He gives them power to do what he has asked them to do. So at the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. He is authorizing them to work on his behalf. But not only does he authorize them, he empowers them. He says at the end of Luke, Wait until Jerusalem, until you receive power from on high. And here, in Acts chapter 2, is that promise fulfilled. They received power as the Spirit came upon them. But what did the Spirit empower them to do? Well, it enabled them to speak in other languages, languages that they had never you know, took, taken the time to learn. And, and the people around are seeing this, and they're going like, how can I hear them in my own language? These are Galileans. You know, there's something about Galileans either by how they looked or their accent that gave them away as Galileans. I mean, these are simple men. They're not well-traveled. These aren't the type of people who go and learn all these languages. How is it that we hear them in our own language? And some conclude that, well, maybe they're drunk. I don't know that. I don't know that. I mean, any police officer knows that the certain test, the sobriety test you give to people, you know, walk a straight line, you know, say the alphabet backwards. But I'm not sure that foreign language is, a, is, is one of those tests, you know, like, hey, what's the Japanese word for scary? You know, like, no, like, cop police officers aren't asking people that. But yeah, here again, we have another connection with the meta narrative of scripture and a story. Um, ever since the early church fathers, they've noticed that Pentecost has connections to the story in Genesis 11 with the city and the Tower of Babel. In fact, even before that, Luke here, as he lists the nations where these people come from, it's as if Luke is referencing, referencing Genesis chapter 10 with the table of nations. The names have been changed, but listing them from the east to the west, it maps on very neatly to it. But what happens? What do we see happen in Genesis chapter 11? Well, at Babel, it says the Everyone under heaven spoke the same language. 
and they, were, they, aimed to, they built a city and they built a tower that reached the heavens. And scholars will tell you that this tower was more than likely a, a ziggurat, this stair-step kind of pyramid thing. And the idea here is not so much that they could reach heaven or build their way to heaven, but really it was about summoning heaven down, summoning God to come and live because the ziggurat was always part of a temple complex. They were trying to get God to come and live in a temple so that he would come and bless them, so they could start this sort of transactional religion that if we scratch God's back, he'll scratch ours. He'll bless us, and thus we can make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. This, of course, goes against what God said to humanity in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Repeating the same to Noah and his family after the flood, they didn't want to scatter. They stayed in one place and so God says, well, this won't do. So he goes and he divides the languages. And you know, language is important for communication, and communication is important for building a city and a tower. And so all of a sudden, when they don't understand each other, they begin to scatter. So it seems that at Babel, it was about men trying to get God into a temple, but Pentecost is God getting a temple into man. But some theologians have observed there's also something else that seems to be going on here at Babel, something else almost to take a look behind the curtain. And I, and I find what they propose to be a bit compelling. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is before Israel is going to enter the promised land with, with Moses there kind of giving his final uh, instructions, final sermon, because he knows that he's not going to go into the promised land. And, and he says, in chapter, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So it begins, when the Lord divided the nations, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, what is he referencing? Well, it seems like he's talking about Babel. He's talking about Babel. And he talks about how Jacob, or Israel, is the Lord's allotted heritage. And so what the, the, the proposition is, is that at Babel, the Lord not only divided, but he disinherited the nations. That being, look, I wanted to be, I wanted to be family with you on earth. But it seems that you don't want to do things my way. You want to do things your own way. So I'm going to give you over to what you want. Some have proposed that Deuteronomy 32 is like the Romans 1 of the Old Testament. It's giving them over to what they ask. He's disinheriting them. He's like the father in the story, the prodigal son. The son wants his inheritance. Okay, fine. But we're no longer family. And, but, but it's also interesting here. It says, he divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Now, you might have another version. If you look this up in your NIV, you're looking up going, that's not what mine says. Because other versions say, say according to the number of the sons of Israel. So what do we make of this? Well, I read here from the ESV, and it seems the ESV here is, is using an older text. They're using the, Dead sea, the text from the Dead Sea Scrolls, whereas the later versions are using a newer text, the, the Masoretic, and we don't have time to get into the textual criticism, but as a general rule, the older texts are more close to the original. 
And besides, the logic of the whole sons of Israel thing doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you think about the fact that it was at Babel when God divided the nations. And if he divided them according to the number of the sons of Israel, well, problem with that is Israel isn't a nation yet. Israel doesn't exist yet. In fact, it is in Genesis 12 when God initiates with a man named Abraham. And from there is where Israel comes from. So he divides the nations according to the number of the sons of God. And it seems here, as God disinherits the nations, he's giving these sons of God the authority over the nations. He's, he's delegating this authority to this. So who are these sons of God? We can describe it this way. You can call it, they're part of members of the divine council. They are these heavenly hosts. It's a bit, probably a bit too simplistic to call them as angels, but it's kind of within that, that realm. He gives them to these, these sons of God. And this is why in a place like Daniel chapter 10, there's a heavenly messenger that comes to Daniel and says, hey, sorry I'm late. I left as soon as you prayed. I know it took me 21 days to get here, but the prince of Persia stood before me until Michael, the archangel, came. Well, who's this prince of Persia? Well, it's not a human. It's these territories, because God has given the, these territories to these sons of God. And it seems that what has happened is that these sons of God, who Paul will call the, the rulers, the authorities, the principalities, these spiritual beings, they have, God has granted these beings these, this territory. But Paul says in Colossians 2 that God has disarmed the rulers and authorities putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in Jesus. So through Jesus, God is re-inheriting the nations. But it seems in the meantime, there was a rebellion of these sons of God. Because as it says in Psalms, Psalm 82, it says, God has taken place in his divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The word gods here is Elohim. And you're thinking, I thought Elohim was a name for God. Well, yeah, it is, but it's also describing these spiritual beings. So God is the Elohim of Elohim. He is the Elohim most high. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. And he says to them, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and fatherless and maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding, and they walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And he says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." It seems that these sons of God have rebelled against God and have, and have led the nations into idolatry. And so God says to them, even though you're sons of God, you're going to die like men. And at the end of this psalm, it says, arise, O God, you will inherit all the nations. You will take these nations who have been under the oppression of these sons of God back. And when do we see this begin to happen? Pentecost. Jesus defeats the rulers and authorities through his death on the cross. And at Pentecost, as that is proclaimed, the nations are brought back to him. 
It's amazing and it's brilliant because here we have not just the nations hearing this message of the gospel, but we have Jews from these nations. God-fearing Jews who never came back to the promised land after the exile. So they've scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. So it is Jews who hear this and they believe the message and they are filled with the spirit. And then what happens next? They go back home, taking the message, taking the spirit with them, fulfilling this promise that God said to Abraham, through you, through your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the timing of this is brilliant because here they were, they are at Pentecost and later we'll read this where Peter says, God made Jesus who you crucified Messiah and Christ. How can Peter say to them, you crucified? Well, because they were there at Passover. Passover was also a pilgrimage feast where Jews from around the world would go into Jerusalem. And certainly there are many among this crowd who 50 days before were shouting, crucify him. And yet here they are back in town for Pentecost to hear this message. And they are cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? It's brilliant. And so as this wind came, it seems as if it's, it's almost like it's blowing a dandelion and, and seeds are scattering all over the nations. And this wind kept blowing across nations and across continents and down through the centuries. And here we are today, you could say in large part due to Pentecost. This news went viral. Aren't you thankful for Pentecost? Now, so the news reached the nations and it's, you know, it's gone and the spirit is working even today. And I feel like it's likely that we could use some encouragement just with where we are in, in this you know, time in the world. There's, there's, lots of, there's lots to be discouraged about. Being in the midst of a pandemic, political tension, economic uncertainty, there's just lots that we can just be bummed about. But let me offer some encouragement that God is still at work. The same spirit that came in power at Pentecost is still working today. And it's still working in the nations. There's a, a history professor at, I think he's at Baylor, named Philip Jenkins, wrote a book on global Christianity. And he said one of the most, uh, the, the biggest story of the 20th century is not the rise and fall of communism or any other ism, but it's the explosive growth of the Christian church. It's the explosive growth of evangelicalism. And it's the most undercovered story. And there's plenty of statistics out there. Um, from Gordon Conwell Seminary, they say that in 1970, there were only about 11 million Christians in East Asia. Today, there's about 171 million. It's like going from 1% to 10%. In Africa, in 1910, there were about 10 million Christians on the whole continent. Today, it's about 630 million, going from about 10% to 50% in one century. And we can hear stories of many places. Our brother Rennes shares with us about India and the explosive things that are happening there. I'm recently learning about the church in Iran, 
multiple missions organizations talking about how Iran is the fastest growing church in the world right now. In 1980, there was about 500, 500 identifiable Christians. Today, the estimate is anywhere from 300,000 to a million. So imagine, imagine a town of 500 people, probably a town that doesn't even have a gas station, growing to be like Cincinnati or someplace like that within 40 years. I mean, that's huge. And the thing about this is not only can we be encouraged by the, by the, the rate of growth and everything, and obviously there's still work to be done, but not only is it how much it's growing, but also it's how it's growing. And then ask any missionary out there, and they will tell you that the church, where the, where the church is growing, where the church is explosively coming to life, it's accompanied by works of the Spirit. Signs and wonders, the miraculous, healings, demonic exorcisms. That's how the church is growing. There's... Um, uh, Craig Keener is a uh, professor, a, a scholar of New Testament, and he was writing a commentary on the book of Acts, and he began to write a footnote about miracles, but that footnote became a 1,200-page book, book called Miracles, where he chronicles miracles from the Old Testament and New Testament and even modern-day miracles. And he says there's just millions of eyewitness testimony about miracles all over the world. And he says, well, not all of them are you know, well-documented, but he lists about 100 coming from the West that have medical documentation to them. Things like x-rays that one day have multiple fractures to the next day, somehow, fractures are all gone. Tumors shrinking overnight. He tells the story of a man who had a heart attack and was dead for 40 minutes, and he was verifiably dead. His fingers were turning black. The doctors sense the Holy Spirit say to him, try one more time. So 40 minutes later, he goes back and shocks the man back to life. The nurse gasps and says, what have you done? Thinking with 40 minutes without oxygen, certainly he'd have brain damage. No brain damage. It's a miracle, just all sorts of miraculous things happening. And Keener says that about 55% of doctors surveyed say that they've witnessed a medical miracle. But it's amazing. The Lord, the, the same spirit who worked at Pentecost is still at work today. And I think for many of us, some of us have seen stuff, but I imagine a lot of us in this room have not. And we say, I don't know that God works like that anymore. And, and depending on, you know, here in America, we might have some, some baggage with that. We, we see people on the religious channels swinging jackets around and knocking people down with their jackets <laughs> as a movement of the spirit. And we're like... I don't know if I want part of that. Or even things like recently, people claiming a prophecy, predicting certain results of certain elections and that not coming to fruition. We say like, ah, yeah, I don't know that God works like that anymore. But millions and millions of people can't be wrong. God still works in miraculous ways if we have eyes to see but it may be for some of us, you know, like, well, I've never experienced that personally. You know, what's going on? Well, you know, what gives? I, I mean, I'm open to this, but still, you know. And Mike last week mentioned a number of, um, a number of obstacles to the Holy Spirit, and those are definitely worth considering. You know, and, and it could be that some of it is just the cultural baggage. We, um, we throw out the gift along with the wrapping paper. We just don't like how it's presented. 
But I wonder, in addition, if there's also something like the account we read after the transfiguration. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he discovers his disciples having an argument with the crowd. And there a man comes up to Jesus and says, my son is, you know, my son is being oppressed by a demon and I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't drive him out. And Jesus says, how long will I be with this faithful, faithless generation? And the man says, if you can help, will you, will you do anything for my son? And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. The man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And so Jesus um, casts out the demon from the boy and gives him back to his father. But later on, the disciples ask, they say to Jesus, why weren't we able to cast it out? And Jesus says, this kind comes out with prayer. And what comes to my mind is something else that Mike said last week when he said, a desperate world needs dependent Christians. A desperate world needs Christians who are dependent on God. And prayer is the language of dependence. So it seems to me that perhaps if we want to be effective like Jesus, it may be we need to learn to imitate the practices of Jesus. And we read throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus you know, going to lonely places, retreating to lonely places, and spending all night in prayer to the Father. And as he comes out, power is just radiating out of him, and everyone's getting healed. And yeah, we might say, well, well of course, Jesus is God. Um, Jesus didn't heal people because he was God. He healed people because he had the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter says so in Acts chapter 10. He's preaching to a group of Gentiles. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples, greater things you will do than even this because of the power of the Spirit. And so it seems perhaps a way for us to, you know, I don't want to say unlock it, but it seems that if we want the results of Jesus, the effectiveness of Jesus, we might need to learn to imitate the practices, the disciplines of Jesus. And look, this disciplines, we don't like that word. It sounds like legalism. It sounds like work. But look, the, the point of the disciplines of praying and fasting and reading the scriptures is a display of our dependence on God. It's to strengthen the bond, the fellowship, and the intimacy that we have with God, and it builds faith. And Jesus says, nothing is impossible for the one who believes. Could we use more faith? I know I can. And learning to, to do the practices of Jesus, those could be things that build faith. I've... Um, I recently heard a talk by a, a guy named Paul McConaughey, who was um, an associate of Mike's. And he was sharing about a time when their church was starting to you know, lean into this kind of thing, to, to say they felt convicted by the Lord that they needed to start practicing this type of healing ministry. And so it's like, okay, we're going to give it a go. So we're going we're gonna to open our doors every day, five, or five days a week from 7 to 7.30, and anyone who wants prayer for healing can, can come in. And he said, to be honest with you, for that first you know, two years, 
we didn't see very many people get healed, maybe a couple. And he said, so I was praying to the Lord about this one day, and I was like, Lord, I, you know, it seems that this is what you want. We seem convicted to do this, but we just, you know, you know what gives? And he, he had a sense of the Lord saying to him, he says, Paul, how long did your sister go to medical school to learn to be a doctor and to heal within the rules of the natural world? He said, about seven years. And he says, then the Lord said to me, are you willing to put seven years into praying? Are you willing to put seven years into learning to heal this way? Are you as committed to healing this way as your sister is to healing within the rules of the natural world? And he says, I don't know when the transition happened, but by the end of the seven years, we were seeing lots of people get healed. And at the time of the recording I heard, he says, there's not a week that goes by when we don't see somebody healed. Now, I'm not saying that Apex, all we gotta do is pray for seven years, but my question is, are we willing to be committed? Are we willing to pray with tenacious persistence? The persistence like the persistent widow who prayed to the unjust judge. Are we willing to be like Jacob who wrestled and say, I won't let go until you bless me? Continuing to knock, continuing to ask, and still we see the Lord just do great and amazing things. Because look, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a statistic for this, but it seems intuitive, and let's see if you agree with this. But I would say that churches that pray and ask to see amazing things see God do greater things than churches who don't pray to see amazing things. Can we agree on that? Churches that pray to see God do great things see way more great things than churches who don't. And the point of this whole thing is, look, just like it was at Pentecost, and just like it is throughout the world where the miraculous is happening, happening, the people say, they see stuff and they say, what does this mean? What does this mean? And when someone tells them, the response is, then what must I do to be saved? And so, that's my encouragement to us today. As, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the spirit and with full conviction. Like, it's good to know stuff. It's good to have knowledge. It's good to be tight with our theology and, and apologetics and all of that stuff. That's, that's fine. But that by itself isn't going to cut it. We need power. It's like Mike talked about last week. We need power. And so we pray for that power. And we pray, to be, we pray for God to work in us with that power, with that spirit, not to make our own name great, not to make Apex into Babel, but for the sake of his name, for his glory and for his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we are reminded as you say, those of you who are fathers, though you are evil, you know how to give your children good gifts. How much more would the Father give gifts, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we ask for that spirit, we ask for that power, and we want to be tenacious with it. We want to be persistent with it because we want to see people's lives changed. We want to see amazing things happen because that's what changes lives. And we pray to be faithful in that endeavor. And we thank you and love you and we trust you. And Lord, we come to you in dependence saying, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief in your name.
Amen.